Good morning, everybody. Happy Halloween. I see some of you took the invitation to dress up. I love it. I love seeing the kids next door, too. So cute. Um, I just want to throw out there and let you know, um, maybe celebrate. Yeah, let's celebrate. Um, you know, a lot of 22, 23-year-olds were probably you know, doing other things last night that are way more fun than Trevor Gray and Amanda Willis, who took five of our middle and high school students to a retreat. And um, they are combined with another church, um, another Alliance church in Arlington, to kind of pour into these kids and to invest in each other and then um, kind of look to God together. So the next time you see Trevor or Amanda Willis, would you thank them for us, for their investment in these kids? I cannot wait for my daughter to come home. It is so cool for me personally um, to not be there, even though I really miss getting to connect with these kids. It's just a real treat for my daughter and my kids to not have her mommy um, being her spiritual leader 100% of the time. So um, anyway, they come back today, and we're just excited to see them. But as a church, I just want to say thank you, Trevor and Amanda. I'm assuming you're going to watch this because you're in life groups, and so your groups are talking about the message. But we love you guys, and we are so incredibly grateful for you. With it being Halloween, too, we have some candy on your way out. You do not need to have a costume to get that stuff. So load up as much as you can in your pockets because I'd rather not take it home because, you know what I'm saying, I, get, I eat it for lunch. And then Jason's like, hey, what would you have for lunch today? I'm like, that's not why I'm grumpy. It's not because I was eating Halloween candy only all morning. It was just a really bad day. Um, okay, what, what real announcements do I have? Oh, you guys. Mm-hmm, lady. I, there was a deep, mm. Like, that was unexpected. I was expecting a, ladies, it's if gathering. Okay, um, no, I am so excited. In a few weeks, on November 20th, we are going to gather with any of you ladies that are available, willing, able to come here. Um, if Gathering is a conference that happens, and so we'll be watching some of the speakers on video right here, but I think the coolest part of this event will be that we are going to sit around tables and talk about what we're hearing and invest in each other, and I think that it has been a long couple years for us ladies, and we haven't had the chance to do that um, really well. And so I'm hoping that that will just kind of be a catalytic event that after this, then we will begin to gather together in homes around tables. And at the event, you would be able to sign up to be at one of the host homes and sit around a table and talk about what if God's real? What does that mean for our everyday lives? And so that's kind of the, the focus. I've watched quite a few of the talks and their theme this year is even if. Even if life is not how I thought it would be, what does that mean for me? And so I'm excited for, for that. Um, we will have details for you for actually RSVPing and signing up and letting us know that you're coming. Um, next Sunday, we'll officially launch. So for now, save the date. If you know of a lady that might need to sit in a room and around a table with other women, would you just be brave and invite them? It, 
you never know. You never know what God might do with that. So um, I'm excited for that. Last announcement is you can respond to anything that you're hearing this morning. If you have prayer needs, you want to talk to us about anything, the way that you connect with us is through your online communication card. And you go to brookviewchurch.com and click on the contact tab, and then there's that communication card. And we love hearing from you throughout the week. We love hearing from those of you that are visiting us at home, from at home, watching at home. You're here. It's good to have you as well. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Dear God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this place that we get to be to gather together. And I pray, God, that you would move among us. Um, you know what has gone on in our week and in our morning and just life in general. And you know that we need your fresh wind moving through, through us, God. And so... Um, we surrender this space to you and invite you in it. In your name I pray. Amen. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But the world so hated God that it sinned against him. If you do not turn from your sins, you will die. It's that simple. You either turn or you burn. If you do not repent, you will be cast into the lake of fire and you will burn there forever. This is what you call love speech. We're telling the truth here. Jesus Christ will come back and judge all of us. If we die separated from God in this life, we will be separated for eternity. Think of the worst horror movie you have ever seen. We're gonna go to a drive-through right now and demonstrate that you can hand out gospel tracts and drive through windows. So fast food restaurants, if you're making a coffee stop. Okay, so we're just gonna take our stuff, and we're gonna pay for it, we'll try to hand out one of these. Sometimes, usually they take them, sometimes they don't. Starbucks is a great place because you can probably assume that if you work at Starbucks, you're not a believer. That's just, that's just the way it goes, it's the nature of it. Going, sir. Would you like a gospel track today? Sorry. Gospel track today to save you from your sins. Oh yeah. You think you're a good person? Sorry. Do you think you're a good person? I guess. Yeah. The Bible says no one's good, right? No, thank you. No. Take care, boys. Take care of your soul, sir. Would you like a gospel track today to save you from your sins. How's it going, sir? Would you like a gospel track? Oh, no one's good. That's the problem. Several of you are dressed up. I'm loving it. I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. Some of you, did you guys notice that Emily Callen is like a Starbucks barista? I, so we may have some concerns. I, I don't know. You know, 
For the last few weeks, we, we've, be, we've been talking about what's, what's kind of become a dirty word. Evangelism. Right? This is a seven-week series on evangelism. And the reason for it is because of the priority of Jesus. Because in, in his final week, when Jesus summed up the mission of his life, he described it like this. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And when Jesus was describing the heart of God, he said, more than once, I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And when the religious criticized Jesus for who he spent time with, who he hung out with, who he ate meals with, he explained himself this way. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, you guys, I could like keep going on like this, like for the entire sermon, because there's like example after example after example in the gospels. But what's obvious in the New Testament and all over the teachings of Jesus is this. The lost were and are the priority of Jesus. And personally, you guys, I find it actually helpful that Jesus uses the word lost to describe those that are outside of relationship with him. Lost, meaning searching for a home, for safety, for rest. Lost. That, that feeling that plunges deep down in your gut when you realize, I don't, know the way to, I don't know the way to where I thought I was going. And, and also, I don't know the way back to where I last felt safe. Like, I'm lost. It's a word of compassion and love and concern. It's never to be thought of as one that's, that's disrespectful or, or blaming or condescending. We, we talk a lot about how we have this like really deep thirst for Jesus, right? We have this thirst in us that nothing else can quench, right? And it's a thirst for Jesus. But here's, here's something that's also true. Jesus thirsts for us. Jesus thirsts for every single one of us. And so a couple thousand years later, here we are, a room full of mostly normal, generally reasonable, thoughtful, sincere, socially capable, emotionally intelligent people, I think. <laughs> and we're having a serious discussion about evangelism. And for many of you, that, that very word sends chills down your spine. It's like cringy. And if that's you, you just need to know you're not alone, right? In the church, we're, we're like torn between two realities. We, we know that lost people are the priority of Jesus. We know that. Okay, we know, we know, we know, we know. But when we think about then going out and, and like sharing our faith, we just feel frozen. Like, like it can feel, feel cheap to turn this sincere or even life-changing encounter that we've had with God ourselves into evangelism. In fact, it can feel like I'm a salesman who's just sort of supposed to be out there peddling the product of Jesus. Like, like God wants me to go on this advertising campaign for him, but to do it just subtly enough that you don't realize it's an ad. 
And at times, we can feel sort of bitter about this. I mean, I've actually talked with people who are, they're, they're actually bitter about this. The, the bitter that this is even like part of the whole deal, that it's, it's kind of an expectation. And it's like, you know what? I, I like you, Jesus. But, it, but if you were signing me up for your PR team, I just wish you'd led with that. Because I thought I was signing up for unconditional love and, and life to the full. And, and this part makes the whole thing feel more like a pyramid scheme. And that, that doesn't really sit right. Because I, I encountered a God that turned my life upside down in the most amazing way. But when I, when I try to share that in a spiritually open but religiously suspicious environment like the greater Seattle area, it feels a whole lot more like product placement than like streams of living water just flowing over the banks of my life to quench the soul thirst of others. Like my faith in God is real and it's sincere, but sometimes my attempts at evangelism seem to, to cheapen that. They feel like an inadequate expression of the God that I know and love so much. So much of these feelings, I think, stem from what it is that we, we picture, right? The, the image that floods to our mind when we hear the word evangelism. Like you've all got pictures that flood to your mind when you hear that word. Author Alan Jones said it this way. He said, evangelism has been infected by the desire to package things for easy consumption. And the trouble with that is that Jesus does not sell well except as a narcotic that will take away your pain and make you intensely happy all the time. The question for the believer is how to tell the truth in faith so that what we are and what we present is both genuinely hopeful and uncompromisingly realistic. And I think that kind of gets at it a little bit. Um, Eugene Peterson said something similar. He said, it is the devil's own work to detach the language of salvation from the setting of salvation, to separate words from personal relationships, to make salvation a cause or a project that can be conducted as efficiently and impersonally as possible, but the gospel will not permit it. Like so much evangelism, right? It is done as a project or a cause or, or a program. It's an attempt to make it efficient but what happens is it can become so, so impersonal. I mean, the gospel itself is relational and personal. And to share it like a, a, vac like a vacuum cleaner salesman sells vacuum cleaners, feels, it feels odd. It doesn't feel right. It feels like something's off. And there's a reason that many of the forms of evangelism that we've seen don't sit very well. So here's a tragic thing about bad examples of evangelism. Not only do they result in those like outside the church being turned off, they result in those inside the church being turned off. And when that happens, God help those on the outside. When the message of Jesus gets peeled away from the person and the way of Jesus, then it's, it's hollowed out and it's empty. The gospel, the gospel itself is intensely relational, is it not? 
It's about being loved by Jesus, and it's about entering into a, a new family. It's about brothers and sisters that are also forgiven through Jesus and have encountered him. And it's about love being received and then given away. It's about love being lived through us. It's about love lived. The gospel itself is intensely relational. So evangelism, really, if it's, it, it should reflect what it's proclaiming should reflect love and relationship and warmth and patience and grace and perseverance. It isn't best reflected by like dropping it on someone and then walking away. But because for many of us, we have seen forms of preaching the gospel that don't really reflect the gospel very well, we just look at it and we decide, you know what, evangelism isn't for me. It's just not for me. I mean, I get how it's for other people. And I get how people need it, but it is not for me. And what was central for Jesus then gets pushed to the periphery for us, and we are left with a like normalized or privatized faith. Let me define those things. It's so tempting for us to, to spend so much energy trying to normalize Jesus. Like we've bought into the subtle and deceptive idea that I'm, I'm like doing God a favor by making him seem as normal as possible. We, we live trying to project this kind of God to the world like, you know what, dude, my, my Jesus is so laid back and so cool, so you, you, you actually you can follow him in such a way that no one would even notice. Want to come follow him like me? As if God is in heaven looking down on that going, oh, way to go. You're slaying it like you're disguising me perfectly. But I mean, you have to, you know, go, okay, wait. Okay, wait. Is that really what we want to do? And it's not just that we try to normalize Jesus. We also, we also privatize him, right? We can, we can just retreat inward and, and just keep our, our love for Jesus private. And, and we live a story that, that is essentially like, okay, you do your thing, you do you, and, and I'll do me. And when I'm in places and I'm around people to whom Jesus is culturally palatable, then of course, Jesus is like a huge deal to me. But if I'm unsure how it might be received in a, in a particular setting, then I respectfully keep that part of myself private. And for many of us, under the guise of, I'm just trying to be an emotionally intelligent man, we have been perfecting this careful dance of never being thought less of for following Jesus. Tyler Statton warns of this kind of approach to Jesus. I think this is, this is amazing. He says, if your primary concern is following Jesus in a way that camouflages into your surroundings and costs you nothing socially, what we're left with when we live that way is a pluralistically accepted, socially viable, well-respected, surprisingly winsome, and powerless faith. One that avoids off-putting confrontation, but also avoids risk and trust. One that avoids or corrects the worst of Christian misconceptions, and there are many out there, right? But also misses out on the best spiritual fruit. One that is thoughtful and well-rounded, but also almost never surprised by God. See, if we, if we just 
do all that we can to try to normalize and, and privatize Jesus, we're, we're missing out on something. Like, now, are we still Christians? Like, are we still saved? Are, are we still going to heaven? Well, sure. But we're missing out on this, like, deeper intimacy with Jesus. We're missing out on experiencing the supernatural with Jesus. We're well-respected, but as Tyler Satin said, almost never surprised by God. And a big reason that we're doing this series is that for many who follow Jesus right now, we are so confused and so paralyzed when it comes to sharing our faith. And, and one reason, of course, is that we've seen some really bad examples. I mean, so often it just looks like sales or it looks like, actually, it looks like hate at times. We've seen some bad examples, and it's very impersonal. Sometimes it's, it's just like disrespectful. And then, of course, we're, we're just, we are wired to be leery of taking social risks. I'm like, we're uncomfortable. But I, I actually think that there's a whole other factor in all of this. Just another thing that's going on, and it's this. We are filled with so much inadequacy about it. This, this feeling that, I, you know what, I just don't know how to do it right. I don't have what it takes. I wouldn't be able to say everything right. I wouldn't be able to answer if they got, you know, God help me if they have some questions, right? I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions right. And so, for goodness sake, I, I don't want to do any damage. If I do this thing wrong, I'm actually going to damage people. And so, I might wreck people, but, you know, I, and I don't want to do that. But, but I think a lot of that inadequacy stems from a tragic misconception that is so common. We think that getting people to respond to Jesus is somehow all on us. That, it, that it's up to us doing it all just right. Many of us think, we, this is what we think. We think, you know what, God shows up when I show up. That just isn't true. I mean, said another way, God starts pursuing someone as soon as I'm willing to awkwardly breach the faith topic with them. Like this person responding to God is all on me. It's on me saying things just right and doing things just right because I'm bringing God to a place that he's never been before. You guys, that's just not how it works. That's just not true at all. Um, one time, Jesus was caring for some of the most broken people, people that seemed that seems so far from God, like, like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew tells us. And as Jesus, Jesus motioned to the crowds of people, he said to his disciples, he's like, look, he's like, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. In other words, the seeds have, uh, of faith have, have grown into something very real here, but somebody needs to go to the people where God has already been working and help them take, take the next steps, whatever those next steps are, into kingdom life. The point Jesus was making is that God was already there. I love you, Glenda. You're bringing the energy this morning. Welcome to Seattle. If you don't know, that's Giovanna's mom. And she's a... She's a retired preacher. Here's a lady that's been telling, about, telling people about Jesus for year after year. And here you are with the amens. I love it. Here's, here's what's stunning about evangelism. We're, we're not taking God somewhere he hasn't already been. Instead, we're simply joining Jesus 
where he's already working. A part of the reason that, that many of us cringe at the thought of evangelism is because we've bought into this illusion that it's like, it's all up to me. That, that at some point, Jesus stopped seeking and saving the lost, that he like tapped out and he dropped this huge responsibility in our laps. And the reality is, you guys, that could not be further from the truth. And so I, I just want to pause for a moment and ask, like, who is Jesus? Like, what is he like? And, and how, might this, how might this look for us? Because the truth is, we have, we have all kinds of room to be creative. It's not about saying the perfect thing. It's just about being willing to speak, right? You don't have, you have so much room to be creative. And, 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 and the truth is, it is a chance to go on this amazing adventure with Jesus if we're willing to do it. Um, Tony Campolo was... He's a well-known sociologist and writer and speaker and pastor, and he used to travel around. I suppose he still does kind of on the Christian circuit. I saw him speak when I was in college. Uh, but he, he was a writer, and he wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is a Party. Uh, and he begins it with a, a true story. And when I, was, when I was in college, I was up at Western, and I was in my room uh, of my apartment. I had one roommate at the time, and and I was just kind of hanging out in my room, and my roommate was reading the book, and he yelled, dude! He's like, dude, you got to come out here. I have to read you something. And he read me the story that opens that book, and it, it was it's so powerful. I've never forgotten it. Um, but the story basically is this. Tony Campolo once had a speaking engagement in Hawaii, but he'd, he'd flown there from, um, from the East Coast time zone, like from, from Ohio, I think. So his first night... He wakes up at 2.30 in the morning in his hotel room, and his, his body clock is saying it's, it's actually 8.30 in the morning. So he can't sleep, and, he, and he's, he's hungry. So he starts wandering around the city looking for anything that's open. And he happens upon this, like, 24-hour diner, and he heads in. At this point, it's like 3 a.m. or so in the morning, and, of course, he's the only customer in the place. And there's just one guy that's in there running the entire operation, right? He's hosting and cooking and refilling coffee and all of it. So Campola sits down at the counter by the kitchen where he can kind of interact with this guy. And as he's sipping his coffee and waiting for his food, a group of eight or nine female prostitutes walks in. And they grab a couple of tables right behind him. And, and they are loud. And they're not discreet. And so he overhears every word. And they're in that kind of mood where everything is funny. You guys ever been in that mood? <laughs> Everything's funny. Like, it's just, it doesn't matter. You know, it's just funny. So eventually, one of them, one of them says, oh, man, I'm going to be 39 tomorrow. And one of the other ones jokes, oh, oh yeah? Okay. Well, what do you want us to do? Like, throw you a birthday party, <laughs> right? And they all laugh, and she says, no, 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 you know, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why, why start now? And then they all just kind of laugh it off and change the subject, and they hang out, and they eat, and they do their thing for quite a while longer, and then eventually when they're done, they slip out the door, and it's quiet again. So before leaving the diner as he's paying his check, Campolo asks the cook, Hey, do they come in here every night? Yep, every night. 
like 3.30 on the dot. It's like, it's like clockwork. Okay, well, the one who said it's her birthday, do you know her? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's Agnes. Okay, well, I got an idea. What if you and I throw Agnes a birthday party right here tomorrow night? And the cook is like, <laughs> uh, okay. So Campolo is like, all right, great. I'll buy the birthday cake and get decorations and everything, and I'll take care of everything if you just let me use the diner to host this, this party. And by now, the, the guy behind the counter, he's starting to, like, starting to process this, and he's, he, he's like, you know what, this is, this is like a great idea. No, like this is a really great idea because Agnes is, is one of those people that's like super sweet and kind, but sadly, very few are sweet and kind to her in return. So the next night, Campolo shows up at 2.30 a.m., figures he'll get there an hour early to get everything set up. But to his surprise, when he walks in, the place is completely packed. It is like wall-to-wall prostitutes. Apparently, the diner guy, like, put the word out on the street. And Tony Campolo said it's like every prostitute in Honolulu came to that diner. So they start distributing all of these, like, cheesy paper mache decorations, and they blow up balloons, and, and Tony and, and all the prostitutes are hanging the balloons all around the diner, and, and every, they're all just pitching in, and, and, and they get it looking like a, like a cheap birthday party for a child. Well, when Agnes and her group of eight or nine walks in, they all yell, Happy birthday, Agnes! And she is so taken back that her legs start trembling. Like, two people have to have physically help her to a bar stool. And then as the, the diner guy presents her the cake with like 39 flaming candles on it, they all sing happy birthday. When they finish singing, he sets the cake in front of her and, and she just sits there like in stunned silence. And so one of the other girls says, yo, Agnes, yo, you got to blow out the candles. And Agnes, blow, blow the candles out because we all want some cake. But Agnes softly says, you know, I, I know I'm supposed to blow out the candles. And then, like, everybody gets a piece. But I've, I've never had a birthday cake before. And I'd really just like to take this home and put it in my freezer so I can take it out and look at it from time to time. W- would you guys be okay with that? And by the time she finished the request her emotions just sort of took over and she had tears streaming down her face. So suddenly, the whole mood in the diner is like, whoa, what's happening? It goes from celebratory to like silent and and kind of emotional and nobody knew what to say. It's just awkward. So Tony Campolo shouts out, well, what do you say we pray? This is what pastors do. Right? Like, they don't teach us this stuff. But when nobody knows what to say next, you know, this is the go-to, right? So he says he, prayed, he prays for Agnes, and he, he thanked God for her life, and he, he, he pleaded with God to just be, like, extra special good to her. 
And then when he said amen, the guy behind the, the diner yelled out with a little bit of hostility because he's like connected to this whole thing. So he's like, what the heck, man? He's like, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of a church do you belong to anyway? And Tony Campolo writes that it was one of those moments when just the right words come to you. And so he smiled and said to a room full of prostitutes, well, I belong to the church that throws birthday parties for strangers at 3.30 in the morning. Guys, that is, that is the church of Jesus when she's at her best. So whatever has gotten stuck to Jesus as a result of people who have used his name for a whole lot of things other than that, we have to remember that like, this is Jesus. He's, he's relational. He's creative. He's kind. He, he's the one who throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. He's the one who's working on and working in those that nobody would ever expect. And this was what was so shocking about him in his own day. The invitation just went out to any and all. I mean, it just went out to everybody. He's like, hey, come, come follow me. Hey, come and see. Hey, you're invited. And so that leads me to the concept that I just kind of want us to camp on for the rest of this message this morning. It's just the concept of, of invitation. Seeing where Jesus is working and then joining in really can be as simple as invitation. And, and I want to show you what, what I think is such like a simple biblical example of this. This is so awesome. comes in John chapter 1, right out of the gates. John writes, For the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. So Philip begins to follow Jesus. Okay, there's the invitation. But but look at what else Philip does. Since Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? <laughs> what? <laughs> Can anything good come from there? Anybody think of a city around here, a town like, or like that around here? <laughs> Pullman? Oh, God bless you, Beulah. That was Beulah. If you want to send emails, send them to Beulah. Oh, wasn't you? Who, who was it? Oh, it's Chrissy. Oh, my God. Okay, it was Christy Huffett. Yeah, there it is. Nazareth, right? Like, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, Philip said. Come and see. That's how Nathaniel became one of the 12 disciples. Come and see. That's how he joined the inner circle of Jesus. That's how he, he, he became one of the 12 that journeyed beside God in the flesh for three years. His friend Philip said, hey, Nathaniel, come and see. Like, is there a better group to get in on on the ground floor in human history? Like, how do you, how do you go about getting in Jesus' inner circle? Well, it's this, it's this way. Just come and see. Just invitation. 
And, and see, when, when God is at work in someone and then you or I just extend an invitation, it's extraordinary to think about where all of it can lead. I mean, so many of you that are here or so many of you that are like, that you're watching online or, uh, um, you know, you know and you, you love Jesus. Like you've come to a spot where you know Jesus and you love Jesus. But when you think, how did that happen? It's because someone or possibly a whole chain or series of someone's extended to you a simple invitation. Someone invited you into something and it led to something else, which in turn led to something else. Maybe another invite, which in turn led to something else. And God was at work in you in ways that maybe nobody else even knew. People outside of you, they didn't see it or even know it, but he was at work. And that, that invitation or that series of invitations coincided with what God was doing. And he used that invite to lead to beautiful stuff. Now, I, I want to share one of these stories. We could go around this room, honestly. I bet we could just do story after story after story. We could have you guys call in from online and do story after story. I just want to share one of these. I was in my online group a couple weeks ago, and I asked people to share a little bit of their story, and someone shared something, and I was like, bam, that's it. So I reached out and said, hey, would you write that and let me share it in church? So this is part of the story of a woman in our church named Andrea Fan. And uh, many of you know Andrea. So I asked Andrea to just write about an invitation that has changed her life. So here's what, she, here's what she writes. My story with God began back in 2003. I was dating a boy who was in a band who also played guitar at this new church called Brookview. He'd often ask me to come to church, but I didn't have much interest. I believed there was a God in the sense that there was a higher power, but I knew nothing about Jesus beyond seeing him on crucifixes. Eventually, I began to attend off and on, but I felt incredibly self-conscious, especially when we had to sing out loud with only 10 to 15 other people, uh, four of them being in the band. <laughs> I have to say, Andrea, we were never that small. <laughs> My gosh. Come on. But then somehow over time, I, I, I started to enjoy coming. The people were friendly and, and the messages began to resonate deeply. As I came more frequently, I kept hearing the pastor, Jason Huguenin, some of you may have heard of him, she writes, <laughs> referring to knowing when you've experienced Jesus. I doubt he was intentionally hammering this point, but it kept standing out to me. I remember thinking, did I miss it? Will I ever feel this? How will I know? I knew that the things being shared on Sunday mornings really appealed to me. I sensed something was stirring within me. I wanted what Jason was referring to, but why hadn't I experienced Jesus in this way? Brookview used to have an annual camping trip, and I was invited. I don't really know why I agreed to go, but... There I was with my college boyfriend and 15 to 20 church people that I barely knew. It happened to be the weekend of my 19th birthday. And so a few of the ladies found out and brought me a cake. I was, I was struck by this simple, thoughtful gesture. 
Over the course of that weekend, there was a sense of being wrapped in love. It surrounded me in a way that is hard to put into words, but I felt a warmth that seeped into my tired soul. It was as if the air around me was thicker, fuller, more alive. It may sound strange or like woo-woo to some, but that's okay because it's the best way I can describe it. Back then, Brookview was so small that they had Sunday service up at the campground. So just a little side, on the weekends of camping, we just did church up there. And it was held in a tiny old amphitheater that held maybe 30 people. As we sat in the rain among the trees and sang to God, I felt my heart open up. Tears streamed down my face, and I remember thinking, this is it. Like, this is you, Jesus. What I'm feeling, this depth of love, it's you. She says, this was a big turning point in my life, which I know, I know that it was. We, you guys, we actually have some photos from Andrea's baptism not long after this. You guys want to see those? Yeah, we do. So check these out. This is Silver Lake. Are you kidding me? <laughs> if you could see well enough, that is a soul patch. <laughs> oh, man, Andrea, what a, what a glorious day that was for her. Is that Cam? <laughs> Don't disrespect Cam like that. <laughs> All right, we got, let's see the next one. Yeah, there she is getting ready. And then uh, that's, that's prayer for her, and then there we are at the end of it. I mean, what a beautiful, beautiful day. That was a big turning point in my life, she says. I don't mean that everything changed and became supernaturally amazing, but also I do. Now that I had encountered Jesus and, and what I think now to be the movement of the Holy Spirit, a hunger grew to know more. I continued to attend Brookview and joined a women's life group. Church was beautiful and wonderful, but life group changed my life. When I look back at that time, I, I recall cramming into small living rooms, the air often brimming with an incredible sense of wonder and excitement. We were all just humbly stumbling through life, trying our best to love each other and those around us. These ladies, and there were many over the years, were kind, welcoming, challenging, patient. Here, I had found a community that centered on love and authenticity. They encouraged me to be myself and to ask hard questions, to be, one who got, to be the one who God created me to be. They've stood with me through heartbreak, the death of my dad, marriage to a man that's not the boy in the band, life course changes, having children, one with severe disabilities, and so much more. This group of people, this church, has shaped me in ways I could never fully express. The community has pushed me, but more often gently walked beside me toward the love of God. Before I found Jesus, I was simply existing. I felt so alone. I often contemplated if I would even be missed if I was gone. When I think of life before God, I picture that I was in a dark hole and then a small light began to shine and get closer, brighter. That light was God, and he reached in and pulled me out. This isn't everyone's story, of course, but it's mine. I was in the dark and then found a place in God's family, God's light, God's life. Now I see so much beauty everywhere. I see it in the sound of the birds in my backyard, in the morning fog, in the laughter of a loved one, in the arms of my husband, 
in the smile of my middle daughter, in the eyes of a stranger. All of these are reflections of God, and it all started with an invitation to a church camping trip. Who knew what a difference that small ask would make? I am forever grateful for that muddy, rainy, wonderful weekend. There can be incredible power in a simple invitation. Come with me and see. A man named Nathaniel got a simple invitation from his friend Philip. A 19-year-old girl named Andrea got a simple invitation to church, and then someone from that community said, come with me and see, to a, to a camping trip, and she did. Invitation, come and see, come check it out, come with me, relational, come with me and see. These kinds of, of invitations come from all kinds of people. They come in so many different forms, in so many different settings. When our uh, oldest daughter, who's now 22, was in kindergarten, something happened. Um, we, we had, like our first kid in school, and Jen started volunteering in the classroom. Can you imagine having Jen Huguenin volunteering in your classroom? <laughs> That's pretty good. She started volunteering in the classroom, and she just, she just adored Kate's teacher. Um, and the respect seemed mutual, so Jen was kind of feeling an almost kind of like friendship. And of course, of course, Kate was, she adored her teacher because she's an incredible lady and, and, a, and a brilliant educator. And so for the next year, for first grade, that, uh, at, like at, at the end of that year, the, for the next year, for, for, for Kate's first grade year now, that kindergarten teacher moved up a grade. And somehow, Kate landed in her class for a second year in a row. And we, that was just random, and, but we were stoked because Kate was lucky enough to get this lady twice. And also, Jen was kind of making a new friend. And so, Jen just kept going in and, and volunteering. And she would come home every once in a while, and she'd say to me, you know, I feel like I should invite her to church because, like, she asks about it sometimes, and, and she seems genuinely interested. But Jen was kind of holding back from being too aggressive. And, and by the way, there is wisdom in that too sometimes, right? Sometimes the moment, it really is not right, and it makes sense to wait a little bit. But Jen, she had it on her radar to invite this woman to our church. And then in December of that first grade year at church, it was like the one year we did this, we had a Christmas choir. Uh, so for our Christmas Eve services, just for one year, we had a, a choir, and we had this experienced choir director that had offered to help, and it felt like, at that time, it felt like just the right thing at the right time. So while Jen was contemplating asking Kate's teacher to come to church, Kate just rumbled on into the classroom and announced, I'm going to sing at my church on Christmas Eve. Teacher, would you like to come watch me sing? I would just love it if you would come. And that was all it took. Her teacher, many of you know her as Shelly, said, sweetie, I would love to watch you sing. Yes, I'll come. Now that first grader is, a, is now a grad student learning to be, guess what? A teacher. And Shelly has been a part of this 
church family and the Huguenin family, essentially, for about 18 years. Like, we've all been learning to walk with Jesus together. Shelly ended up, not long after that, really, going on one of the most amazing trips to Haiti with a group of us. She spent several days training Haitian teachers and just taking her extensive experience and training that she's been blessed with and sharing it with people who have not been so blessed. And also just pouring her love into more and more and more kids. She was amazing on that trip. And she's become a very special person to our family. Um, Shelly's son, Lance, has severe autism. And he's, he's fully grown now, but when he was a little boy, we would, we would watch him regularly. He came over to our house in the afternoons, like weekly. And then here's just another kind of aside. When our son Cameron was in first grade, he's two years behind Kate, he got Shelly. So he had kind of a tough kindergarten experience. We use his teacher's name as a curse word <laughs> at our house. So I want to fully endorse that. You know, that's very Christ-like. Um, but we, we didn't know, but he was way, way, way behind coming out of, of kindergarten. Bottom line is, she didn't like our family and didn't like him and just didn't think he was worth pouring into. It was unbelievable. So in first grade, Shelly identified how far behind he was, and she just worked her tail off to get him caught up and, and get him going. And then get this, when Kate was in fifth grade, she had her in kindergarten, first grade. In fifth grade, Shelly moved up again, and crazy, Kate had her for a third time in elementary, she had her in fifth grade. Uh, do we have that? Yeah. And it was sort of like God was just knitting our families together. So Shelly has walked with us for a long time through some crazy seasons. And a friendship was, that was brewing, it, it, it was brewing in the classroom. Like, there was this friendship brewing in the classroom, but what was it that took it to the next level? A first grade girl saying, teacher, want to come watch me sing? It, it took a tangible invite to get something to move forward. And as we got to know Shelly, here's what's crystal clear, and here's my point in all of this. I want you guys to understand. Our family did not bring God to Shelly because he was already with her and he was already working. She had had the sense before she ever met Jen or Kate, before she ever heard of the Huguenins, she had a sense that, that she wanted to grow spiritually and she wanted to find the right fit, the right place where she could do it. And it's all just further confirmation that it's not that God shows up when I show up. We're simply joining Jesus where he's already working. Jen and Kate just joined Jesus in what he was already doing. God was working in, in Shelley long before our family arrived on the scene, and God was already working in Andrea before the camping trip. There was stuff in her that was being stirred up by Jesus, and that invitation and that camping trip didn't bring God to her. Those people just joined in what God was already doing. And you guys, th that was true of Nathaniel as well. Philip didn't bring God to Nathaniel. He just joined in with what God was already doing in his friend. 
come and see. And here's the story. When, we, when you read the rest of the story, you find out God was actually up to some really cool stuff, and there's a lot of mystery to it. But before the invite, God was clearly already working, and it's, it's obvious if you read the story. So here's the rest of the story. Verse 47, it says, when Jesus, okay, so he, Philip says, come and see. This is the next line. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, this seems like a strange thing because Jesus and this guy are meeting for the first time. But Jesus seems to already know Nathanael somehow. And what Jesus is saying about Nathanael rings true, and Nathanael knows it. He knows there's something going on. It catches him off guard. It immediately grabs his attention. So next verse, how do you know me? Nathanael asked. Now Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now Jesus wasn't physically present to see him there, and Nathanael knew that. The expression to sit under the fig tree was like a first century euphemism. Um, and it was a way of describing reading and meditating on the scriptures. So here's what seems to be happening. And some of this is speculation. But what seems to be happening is that Nathaniel had been reading scripture and he'd been meditating and he'd been praying. And apparently he had had some sort of memorable encounter with God. And Jesus is saying to him, I know all about that. Ooh. So maybe Nathaniel had been praying about his own character. Maybe that he'd truly be a man within whom there is no deceit. I mean, could it be that Jesus is actually like referencing that? We don't know. Okay, we don't know. But Jesus is definitely referencing something. And in this conversation, he's letting Nathaniel know that he knows. Something supernatural is happening here, and whatever it is, Nathaniel realizes that God is up to something. And he gets chills. Have you ever experienced or felt something like that? Like you're wrestling through something big in your life, and then you come to church, and the message is like all about it? Or you, you have a conversation with a friend, and and and. and and it just brings light to that arena of your, of your life somehow. It's like God is up to something. Like, have you guys felt that? I, I have. And I'll tell you what, it is awesome. It is, when it happens, it's like spine tingling. Well, Nathaniel gets chills. He knows something supernatural is happening. It says, then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you think about what Nathaniel actually did go on to see. I mean, just some of it. I mean, he, he, he saw Jesus Feed thousands on the hillside out of like a little kid's lunch twice, two different times. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Peter walk on water. He saw Jesus calm a storm with a word. He saw Jesus heal lepers and give sight to the blind and restore hearing to the deaf. He saw Jesus raise people from the dead. Then he watched as Jesus was crucified and three days later raised to life. 
And at the very end of Jesus explaining what all of it meant, he watched Jesus ascend to heaven with the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He saw the compassion. He heard the teaching. But like more than any of that, for three years, you know what what, what was the big deal about all this? He walked with Jesus. He was loved by Jesus. And then he continued to live his life walking with Jesus. He invited people himself. Nathaniel, let me tell you, he, he, he testified about what he'd seen and what he'd felt and what he'd encountered. And he was the one that was serving Jesus. He was the one of the pillars of this new movement, this grand adventure, this thing that people didn't even know what to call it. They just called it the way. But his initial step into it was nothing more complicated than this. Come and see. Then you and I have also been invited to experience the way. And for most of you that are following Jesus, It's because someone somewhere said to you, come with me and see. And you did, and God was working. It is so tempting for us in this cultural setting to try to normalize or privatize our faith. But Jesus is inviting us to join him in something supernatural. As John Ortberg famously said, if you want to walk on water, you got to what? You got to get out of the boat. You, you, you can try to blend in with culture. You can keep your, your faith private. And, and just so you know, if you do that, you choose to do that, Jesus still loves you. He still loves you. And you are still a Christian and you're still going to heaven. But you will miss out on a grand adventure along the way. God is already working all around us. He's working in the people around us in ways that we can't even begin to fathom. And that means that this is not all on us. We we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to do everything right. We just have to be willing, willing to join Jesus where he's already working. And sometimes, you guys, that really is as simple as extending an invitation. Hey, come with me and see. Father in heaven, I am so grateful for the chain of people all throughout my life and all throughout my faith journey with you who have said, Jason, come with me and see. Because knowing you and life with you is is absolutely the greatest thing that has ever happened to me in my life. And for those of us who are in this room who have who have sincere faith in you. God, would you awaken us to the reality that you're working all around us and people we, we would never expect. But if we're willing to, to have conversations and extend invitations, you can do amazing things and you will do amazing things. Help us to keep our head up, to see the adventure that's before us, to be willing to take some risks here and there and to extend a hand to those that you are so thirsty for. And would you bless that and would you draw people into into relationship with you? God, would you do it? Amen.